0: At the end of the book of Joshua, when the peoples of Canaan were conquered and the land divided amongst the 12 tribes of Israel as their inheritance, Joshua gathered all of the people together at Shechem, and there they renewed their covenant with God. First, Joshua rehearsed the great redemptive acts of God, the calling of Abraham out of the east, out of paganism the promise of the covenant, the birth of Isaac and then Jacob, the sojourn and the slavery in Egypt, the plagues and the exodus, the parting of the Red Sea and the destruction of Pharaoh's armies, the defeat of the Amorites and the Moabites along the wilderness journey, and finally the crossing of the Jordan and the conquest of all the peoples of the land. Then at the end of seven years of warfare... Before sending the people of Israel home to enjoy the inheritance that the Lord their God had given them, Joshua issued them this charge, which forms the climax of this book. Joshua 24, 14. Now, therefore, fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and in faithfulness. Put away the gods that your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. If it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve, whether the gods your fathers served in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you now dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And the people answered Joshua's charge with one voice. They said, Far be it from us that we should forsake the Lord to serve other gods, for it is the Lord our God who brought us and our fathers up from the land of Egypt and out of the house of slavery and who did those great signs in our sight and preserved us in all the way that we went and among all the peoples through whom we passed. And the Lord drove out before us, before us all the peoples, the Amorites who lived in the land. Therefore, we also will serve the Lord, for he is our God. Now, if the book of Joshua had ended there, it would be the most triumphant book in all the Old Testament. The people of God entering into their covenant inheritance in the strength and the power of the Lord and dwelling there in faithfulness to the covenant and thereby enjoying the Lord's blessing and peace. Israel would essentially be the new Adam living in the new garden. Indeed, if that had been the case, one wonders if there would have even been a New Testament. But the book of Joshua does not end there. The very next verse, Joshua said to the people, you are not able to serve the Lord, for he is a holy God. He is a jealous God. He will not forgive your transgressions or your sins. If you forsake the Lord and serve foreign gods, then he will turn and do you harm and consume you after having done you good. And the remainder of the Old Testament tells the story of Israel's sordid demise from that high point of the Old Testament. And it bears out the truth of Joshua's words. The people of Israel were not able to serve the Lord. They repeatedly forsook him to serve foreign gods. And God handed them over to their enemies who destroyed them and drove them out of their inheritance. And this is precisely the point of Joshua when understood in light of the whole biblical canon. Joshua, whose name means Yahweh saves, Yehoshua. In fact, the name Joshua is rendered in the Greek Old Testament as Iesus, Jesus, Jesus. Joshua stands in the Old Testament as a type of Christ. He is a shadow of Jesus. But as with all types and as with all shadows, Joshua is but a pale reflection, a blurry representation of the reality. Together with Moses, Joshua led the people out of the bondage of Egypt and he led them through the wilderness and brought them into the promised land. But Joshua, being only a halfway savior, could accomplish only a halfway salvation. At the end of seven years of warfare and conquest, the people remained rebellious and idolatrous, unable and unwilling to be faithful to God and to his covenant. This is because all Joshua could do was to accomplish an external conquest of Israel's external enemies. He could do nothing to defeat their true enemies of sin, death, and hell. Thus the book of Joshua is intended to create within us a longing for a complete savior and a complete salvation. It's intended to point us to Jesus Christ and to his victory in his death and resurrection. Again and again throughout this study, we're going to see how Joshua forms an imperfect picture of the perfect Christ. And again and again, we're going to look up then from this imperfect shadow to the perfect and the complete reality who is Jesus. Let me give you an example from Joshua chapter 1. Look at verse 6. God tells Joshua, Be strong and courageous, for you shall cause this people to inherit the land that I swore to their fathers to give them. Joshua could only do that halfway as the end of the book reveals. They didn't drive out all their enemies. They remained a rebellious and idolatrous people. They inhabited the land, but only partially and only for a time. Only be strong and very courageous, being careful to do according to all the law that, the Mos- that Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right hand or to the left, that you may have good success wherever you go. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. Then you will make your way prosperous. Then you will have good success. We're going to see in the book of Joshua that he makes a couple of Missteps. He's an imperfect savior. But when we turn and look past him to the real Joshua, the real one whose name is Jesus or Yahweh saves, Jesus, we'll find that he did, verse 7, he did, verse 8, he was strong and very courageous. One thinks of Jesus in the garden overcoming fear and the strength of the Lord and saying, if there be any way, let this cup pass for me yet. Not what I will, but your will be done. And then he got up from the garden and he went to the cross and he accomplished the salvation that Joshua couldn't. We find that he always did what was pleasing to to his father. The book of this law did not depart from his mouth day or night. He was careful to do all that was according to it. And that's why he prospered. And that's why he causes us to inherit the land. So my prayer throughout the next four or five months that we stay, stay in Joshua is that God would strengthen our faith through this study and increase our determination to be faithful to the covenant established in Christ the Lord. For because of the redeeming work, not of Joshua, but of Jesus, the true Joshua, the words that are spoken over us at the end of our Testament is that you is not these. You are not able to serve the Lord, your God, for he's a holy God who will not forgive your sin. Here are the words spoken to us. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is ours in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Joshua could not say that to the people of Israel. The apostle Paul said it to us in Christ. My aim this morning is to introduce this new series in the book of Joshua by placing us on a solid theological foundation in order that we can properly understand its message and not twist it to suit whatever purposes we desire. My approach to preaching the Old Testament is based upon some core principles found from two core texts. The first is 2 Timothy chapter 3. Verses 14 to 17, in this passage, Paul writes Timothy to encourage him to continue in the faith by clinging, by holding fast to the scriptures. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. So what Paul says in this passage, in his letter to Timothy, about scripture or about the sacred writings... Although they can be legitimately applied to the New Testament writings, primarily what Paul was talking about was your Old Testament, the Hebrew Scriptures. So what does Paul say about your Old Testament? What does he say about the book of Joshua, for instance? Well, I see that he says three key truths that are going to be important as we proceed on in this book. Number one, he says the book of Joshua is able to make us wise unto salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. Notice what Paul is affirming. There is sufficient gospel content in the book of Joshua to bring us to saving faith in Christ, even though it was written over a thousand years before Christ was born and describes events that took place 400 years before even that. So don't get the idea that we're taking a break from the gospel now that we're moving on from Romans. We're doing no such thing. I intend to preach the gospel from every chapter of this book because according to Paul, every chapter points us in some way to Christ. The book of Joshua is not ultimately about Joshua. It's about Jesus, the true and better Joshua. Second, Paul says that the book of Joshua is God-breathed. We don't actually know who wrote Joshua. It's not named Joshua because Joshua was its author. The book is actually anonymous. It's clear, evidently, that Joshua wrote some of it. For instance, Joshua 24, 26 says, And Joshua wrote these words in the book of the law of God. But it's also clear that he didn't write some of it. For instance, the record of his death at the end of the book. The Talmud and some ancient rabbis attributed the book to Joshua, but others attributed it to Samuel or to some later editor. It seems to have reached its final form no later than the early reign of David. For example, you can see this in the to this day references in chapters 15 and 16. But you'll note that chapter 6 says that Rahab is still living. So it seems to have been written over a period of time, perhaps by, or in that case, by a period of different authors. But that makes no difference to what Paul says in 2 Timothy chapter 3 that in and behind the human authors of this book stands the divine author. In, under, and behind the humans. The human author's thoughts and ideas and words was the very breath of the spirit of God forming them into the very word of God. In other words, the book of Joshua, every word of it bears the divine characteristics of authority and infallibility. This means that we're going to approach the book of Joshua as history rather than myth or allegory. Including the accounts of the parting of the Jordan River in chapter 3. The fall of the walls of Jericho in chapter 6. The sun standing still in chapter 10. Third, the book of Joshua, Paul says, is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. That the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. In other words, while we're going to treat Joshua as history, we're not going to treat it as merely history. It's also prophecy. It's meant to be preached. It was written for a purpose, and that purpose is the sanctification of God's people in every age, including our own. This book is powerful and profitable to teach you about God and his ways, about man and his sin, about Christ and his salvation. It is powerful and profitable to reprove you of sin, to correct your course, that you may walk in the truth. It is powerful and profitable to train you in righteousness, that you may be a man or woman of God, complete, mature in faith and equipped for every good work. So I would encourage you to expect that from this book. Expect God to work powerfully and profitably in your life from the pages of Joshua. The second text that forms my approach to the book of Joshua is found in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 1-11. through 11, A supremely important passage in the way we understand the Old Testament. Paul, writing to the New Covenant Church at Corinth, says this, I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud, and all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and the sea, and all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. Christ. This is extraordinary. It demonstrates the continuity that exists between Israel under the Old Covenant and the church under the New Covenant and the way that we're to relate the Old Testament and the New Testament. Let me point out a few things. First, Paul calls the Israelites our fathers, our fathers. Meaning that Israel is not some completely separate entity from the church. Rather, Israel is our spiritual ancestry. They are the people of God under the Old Covenant. We are the people of God under the New Covenant. They relate to us as the root to the branches. Therefore, their history, including the book of Joshua, is our history. This is the history of the church. ...that we're embarking upon. Second, Paul says they partook of the shadows... ...of which we have the fullness and the reality. They knew in part, we know in full. They were delivered from the bondage of Egypt by Moses. We've been delivered from the bondage of sin by the death of Christ. They were guided by the pillar of cloud and fire. We are guided by the fire of the Holy Spirit... They passed safely through the Red Sea and were baptized, as it were, into Moses. We likewise pass safely through the waters of judgment and are baptized into Christ. They were nourished in the wilderness by water from the rock and manna from heaven. We are nourished in the wilderness of this world by the living water and the true bread from heaven, which is Christ. But astonishingly, in verse 4, Paul says that the rock that Moses struck and from which flowed forth the rivers of living water in the desert was Christ. In other words, Christ was there in the Old Testament giving life to his people from rocks. Even though he was veiled in types and shadows. We could easily extend the metaphor to include Joshua as a type and shadow of Christ. He has the same name for crying out loud. He leads his people into the conquest of the promised land, just like Jesus leads his people into the new heaven and the new earth. Just as Israel or just as Joshua led Israel in the destruction of her enemies, the Canaanites, that they may possess the land. So Christ leads his church in the destruction of her enemies, namely sin, death and hell, so that we too may possess the land of promise in a new heaven and a new earth. But Paul doesn't stop there in 1 Corinthians 10. He continues to make application to the new covenant church from the Old Testament story. Nevertheless, Paul says, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now these things, note this, these things, what things? Things that are in Numbers and Deuteronomy and Joshua. These things took place as an example for us. That we might not desire evil as they did. So don't be idolaters. As some of them were. As it is written the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. It's an allusion to the golden calf incident. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did. And 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did. And were destroyed by serpents. Nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. We could extend the metaphor. Don't be grumblers lest the floor of the church open up and you drop into hell like it happened with them. You see how Paul is utilizing the Old Testament? His point is abundantly clear. If Israel of old, who followed Christ under types and shadows, if they were judged and destroyed for turning away from God and his covenant to idolatry and sexual immorality, for testing the Lord and grumbling against him, what will become of those who know Christ in his fullness, who then become unfaithful to the Lord and fail to persevere in the end? If God destroyed the people of Israel... If they break covenant with him, God will destroy this church if we break covenant with him. Isn't that what Jesus says in Revelation 2 and 11 when he threatens, or 2 and 3, when he threatens to remove the lampstand from those three churches? Paul concludes Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. So Paul gives us an example for how we ought to read the book of Joshua. Israel is a type and shadow of the church. Moses and Joshua are types and shadows of Christ. The salvation from the bondage of Egypt is a type of our own salvation from the bondage of sin. The Lord's presence and guidance in the pillar of cloud and fire is a type of the Spirit's indwelling presence and guidance in the midst of His church. Israel's passing through the Red Sea is a type of our baptism into Christ. The water from the rock, the manna from heaven is a type of the spiritual nourishment and refreshment that we We receive from Christ through his word. Possession of the promised land is a type and uh, and shadow of our possession of final salvation. A final salvation which only comes through the destruction of the enemies of sin. We could go on and on and on. The parallels are almost endless. So this is how we're going to read the book of Joshua. This is how we're going to draw application In the present, from a book that describes events that took place 2,500 years ago. 3,500 years ago. The book of Joshua is not merely history. It's prophetic history. It is history with a purpose. It is history to be preached. It is history designed to show us Christ and to call us to faithfulness in him. I tried to give you an example of how that works in the introduction to this message. We should see Christ as the true and better Joshua who brings us a true and better salvation. We should see ourselves in the Israelites who were redeemed from the slavery of Egypt and commanded to conquer the land. We should see our enemies, the world, the flesh, and the devil in Israel's enemies, the Canaanites and Amalekites and Moabites and so on. And we should be convinced that nothing short of total victory will suffice. It was Israel's failure to completely drive out the enemies, the inhabitants of the land that proved to be her downfall. And I would say the book of Hebrews makes abundantly clear as well that we too must be utterly devoted to the total destruction of indwelling sin in the pursuit of holiness, because without it, we will not see the Lord. Hebrews twelve fourteen. With that introduction, I'm going to jump into the text of Joshua, and we're going to look this morning briefly at the first nine verses. We'll come back and we'll cover the whole chapter next week. This week, we're going to dial in and focus upon these verses as they relate to you individually in your battle against the indwelling enemies of sin and fear and doubt and unbelief and trials and temptations. Next week, we're going to come back to Joshua 1, and we're going to look at what this chapter as a whole has to say to the church as it prepares to enter into our inheritance. So on the basis of what I've shown you this morning about how Paul read and understood and applied the Old Testament, I want you to picture yourself as Joshua. Now, you're not Joshua as he stands as a type of Christ. Rather, you are Joshua As an Israelite to whom the promise was given. And God is saying to you this morning through his words to Joshua. Believer be strong and courageous. For I will be with you. Do not be dismayed. Do not turn one Iota to the right or to the left of the word that I have given you. Meditate on this word day or night. Be strong and courageous for I will surely cause your way to prosper. Those are God's words for you this morning. The land of Canaan represents the everlasting salvation in the new heavens and the new earth. It's a land flowing with milk and honey. But between you and the enjoyment of that promise, the enjoyment of your inheritance lies a raging river. And beyond that, the peoples of the land, the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Deuteronomy 7.1, seven nations more numerous and mightier than you. And I want you to see in those peoples the indwelling sin that must be put to death if you're to receive the inheritance. You understand that, right? That's going to be vital to our study of Joshua. There is sin in your heart and in your life that needs to be put to death or else you won't inherit the land. Romans 8.13 If by the Spirit we're putting to death the deeds of the flesh, we will live. If not... You're not going to live. I want you to see in those peoples the indwelling sin that must be put to death if you're to receive the inheritance. Lust, immorality, greed, anger, pride, unforgiveness, fear, anxiety, unbelief. These sins are more numerous and they are mighty than you are. How are you going to conquer them? How are you going to overcome them? How are you going to lay hold of the inheritance for which Christ died? Where does, where does the courage and the strength for the battle against sin, the battle for your inheritance come from? Well, three times in the first nine verses, the Lord tells Joshua, be strong and courageous. And three times he anchors that command in a source. So we're asking where does strength and courage for the battle come from? The battle against cancer, the battle against marital problems, the battle against lust, the battle against unbelief and anxiety. Where does the strength and courage come from? Number one, it comes from the sure and certain promise of God. Look at the first six verses. After the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, the Lord said to Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses's assistant, Moses, my servant is dead. Now, therefore, arise, go over this Jordan, you and all this people into the land that I am giving them to the people of Israel. Every place that the sole of your foot will tread upon, I have given to you, just as I promised to Moses. God promised the land to the descendants of Abraham he swore it to the people of Israel and this promise he intends to put steel into Joshua's spine to put courage into his veins do you remember the first time the people of Israel stood at the border of the promised land overlooking that land flowing with milk and honey it's found in numbers 13 and 14. Moses then sent out 12 spies to scout out the land of Canaan, among whom were Joshua and Caleb. And when the spies came back, 10 of them, the 10 besides Joshua and Caleb said to the people of Israel, the land is indeed wonderful. It flows with milk and honey, but the people of the land are too big. They're too strong. And the cities of the land are fortified and impenetrable. And we're not going to be able to take it. Now at that time, 40 years before Joshua 1, Joshua had stood firm and he had pleaded with the people to trust in the Lord and to take the land. Numbers 14, verse 6, and Joshua, the son of Nun and Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, who were among those who had spied out the land, they tore their clothes and they said to all the congregation of the people of Israel, the land which we pass through to spy out is an exceedingly good land. If the Lord delights in us, he will bring us into this land and give it to us, a land that flows with milk and honey. Only do not rebel against the Lord and do not fear the people of the land, for they are bred for us. Their protection is removed from them, and the Lord is with us. Do not fear them. The people didn't listen to Joshua. They didn't listen to Caleb. They listened to the unbelievers. And they picked up stones, actually, to stone Joshua and Caleb, but the glory of the Lord came down and intervened. That was 40 years before Joshua won. At that time, God condemned Israel for their unbelief and rebellion, and they wandered for a generation in the wilderness until that faithless generation was dead. But now, 40 years later, here they are again at the borders of the promised land. And again, the Lord reminds Joshua of the promise, I will give you this land. And that promise cannot fail. At the end of the book, we read this, Joshua 21, 43. Thus the Lord gave to Israel all the land that he swore to give their fathers. And they took possession of it, and they settled there. And the Lord gave them rest on every side, just as he had sworn to their fathers, Do you notice the theme here? Not one of all of their enemies had withstood them, for the Lord had given all their enemies into their hands. Not one word of all the good promises that the Lord had made failed. All came to pass. If you will trust the promise of God, you will find his word true and sure and certain. But I want you to notice in Joshua 1 that the promise is not unconditional. It had to be laid hold of. It had to be believed. The earlier generation didn't believe it, and God turned them away from the promised land. So verse 7, God tells Joshua, only, here's my promise, only be strong and very courageous. Being careful to do according to all the law that Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right hand or to the left, that you may have good success wherever you go. The implication is, if Joshua was not strong and courageous, if he was not careful to do all that Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded, if he turned aside to the right hand or to the left, Joshua and the people would not inherit the promise. The promise would stand... God's word can never fail, but Joshua would not be among those who would inherit it. From the perspective, this is important that you understand this, from the perspective of God's hidden decree, from the perspective of his purposes of election, the promises of God are unconditional. That's why we read in Romans 8:30. All those whom he predestined, he also called; all those whom he called, he also justified; all those whom he justified, he also glorified. The promise was sure. It was unconditional. That's why Jesus says in John 6, 37, all that the father gives to me will come to me and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out for I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me that I should lose none of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. The election of God is unconditional. All whom the father has chosen for eternal life will come to Christ, be saved, be raised. But from the perspective of God's revealed promise, what we know, what we see, what we hear, that promise is conditioned upon our faith and the obedience that comes from true faith. It's conditioned upon the obedience of faith. So Jesus said three chapters earlier, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. If you don't believe the Son, if you don't obey the Son, you're not going to see life and you won't inherit the promise. If you don't put sin to death by the Spirit, Paul says, if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. If you don't put sin to death by the spirit, rather letting sin reign in your flesh, unchecked, unbattled against, you're not going to live. You're not going to inherit the promise. And someone said to Jesus, Lord, will those who are saved be few? And he said to them, strive to enter through the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. Listen, beloved, if you don't strive to enter through the narrow door, you're not gonna inherit the promise. Is that clear enough? Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. The author of Hebrews says, strive, same word, strive for holiness. Why? Why? Because otherwise, you're not going to see God. You won't inherit the promise. Do you see the parallel to Joshua chapter 1? God told Joshua, I'll give you this land if you're strong and courageous and obey my word. Joshua had to lay hold of the promise through a strong and courageous faith. Otherwise, he would not inherit the promise. Even so, God says to you, 1st Baptist Nixa, I will give you eternal life an inheritance of everlasting glory in a new heaven and a new earth. If... You are strong and courageous and lay hold of it and obey my word and put sin to death and cling to my promises and strive to enter in. And if you don't, if you're weak, if you're cowardly, if you let sin reign over you, if you let go of faith and the hope of the gospel when trials and tribulations arise, you're not going to inherit the promise. God's purposes of election are unconditional. From His perspective, His promise is sure and certain. Everyone whom He's given to the Son will come to the Son, will be saved by the Son, will be kept by the Son, will be raised and glorified by the Son. But you don't have access to God's hidden decrees, to His secret will. What you have is his revealed will as written in his word. Therefore, to you and to me, God's promise of salvation is conditional. Namely, it's conditioned upon faith and the obedience that comes from faith. It's a bit of a paradox, I admit. The promise gives you strength and courage, yet it takes strength and courage to lay hold of the promise. But it is no contradiction because God gives what he commands. He fulfills what he requires. All whom the Father has given me will come to me. No man can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. So come to me that you may live. That's the way Jesus preached. It is no contradiction. It is the gospel. The second source of strength and courage we find in this passage is the prosperity and the peace of God, which comes from living on the word of God. Verse seven, only be strong and very courageous, being careful to do according to all the law that Moses, my servant commanded you do not turn from it to the right hand or to the left that you may have good success wherever you go. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous and then you will have good success. Here's how I think strength and courage grow out of the word of God in these verses. It's rooted in the promise of prosperity that God has attached to the obedience of his word. The promise is inviolable. If you will align your life with the word of God, if you'll believe what it says, if you'll obey what it commands, I promise you on the authority of the word of God, your way will prosper. You will win victory over the enemy of sin. You will lay hold of eternal life. You will receive the inheritance. Listen, there is no one, not one, who has ever made this word their treasure, their guide, their meditation day and night, the standard of right and wrong by which they align their life, who has ever failed to enter the land and attain eternal glory. None. Ever. So you can take this promise and build your hope upon it. If you are careful to do all that this book says, if you do not turn from it to the right hand or the left, if this book does not depart from your mouth, if you meditate upon it day and night, so that you are careful to do all that is written in it, God will prosper your soul. Which does not mean he will make you healthy and wealthy. Rather, it means he will cause all things, even cancer, to work together for your salvation. And you will have peace of conscience, that is prosperity of soul, freedom from guilt and shame, which is a peace that the wealthiest people in the world would give their entire fortunes to possess, and it will belong to you. That is what gives you strength and courage in your battle against sin. So the second thing I would say to you this morning is live upon this word. Feed upon it day by day. Meditate upon it day and night. Memorize it. You're going to be hearing more about that in the weeks to come. Use it to slay the enemies of sin and destroy the strongholds of unbelief in your life. Listen to me. Write it down on your hearts and on the pages of your Bible if it's necessary. You will not fail Fail to attain salvation if you will live upon this book of the law. Third, finally, strength and courage come from the presence of God. Verse five, no man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life. Just as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not leave you or forsake you. Verse nine. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened. Do not be dismayed. For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Joshua should be strong and courageous, God says, because God is with him. When he crossed over the Jordan, God was with him. When he marched around Jericho, God was with him. In every battle, in every blunder, in every victory, God was with him, and so is he with you. And that should give you tremendous strength and courage in your battle against sin and in your striving to enter through the narrow gate that leads to salvation. How? Let me close with an example joshua 1 5 is quoted in the new testament the author of hebrews quotes it in hebrews chapter 13 and verse 5 and he applies this promise this promise made to joshua about entering into the promised land he applies specifically to the sin of greed hebrews 13 5 keep your life free from the love of money why should you keep your life free from the love of money? Because elsewhere in the New Testament it says, if you are consumed by the love of money, you'll make shipwreck of your faith and you'll be destroyed. 1 Timothy chapter 6. So yeah, your salvation is on the line when it comes to the love of money. So keep your life free from it. Be content with what you have. For, and notice what he does. He quotes Joshua 1.5. God has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you so that you can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Do you see what he just did? He took the promise spoken to Joshua regarding entering the promised land and he applied it to you and to me in our struggle against sin. So yeah, be strong and courageous in your battle against sin. Why? Because God will never leave you nor forsake you. You can wake up tomorrow morning... As you face the day, a day that's going to be filled with temptations to greed, to immorality, to lust, to unbelief, to anxiety, to the desire for people's approval, for whatever it is that you're struggling with in sin. You can wake up tomorrow morning and say, on the authority of the word of God, Joshua 1.5, I can confidently say, the Lord is my helper, I will not fear, what can man do to me? That's how you use the Bible and live on it. How do you slay the sin of greed and thus save your soul? How do you learn contentment by remembering that God is present with you? He will never leave you. He will never forsake you. He will provide you with everything that you need to attain the promise of eternal life, which may mean that he puts food on your table or provides you with a source of income. Or it may mean that he gives you the ability to go 40 days and 40 nights without eating. He's done both. But he will not let your faith fail. He will not let your soul falter. He will not let your enemy triumph over you so as to destroy you. Not so long as you trust in him and live upon his word. So let that give you strength and courage for the battle that you face when you walk out through those doors in just a few moments.